Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. The Irish Times Inside Business Podcast in association with EY. Building a better working world. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. In this episode, I'll be talking to Fiona Dawson, a Dublin woman who made it to the very top rank of executives at global food giant Mars. Last month, Fiona retired from the company after a successful 33-year career. Having joined straight from Trinity College in 1988, Fiona stepped down as global president of Mars Food, multi-sales and global customers, a role that involved oversight of 2,000 employees and 12 manufacturing sites. While she has now retired from Mars, Fiona remains busy with a portfolio of non-executive directorships, including with blue-chip brands Marks & Spencer and the Lego Group. We'll talk about some of the challenges facing those companies later. In this interview, you'll hear Fiona tell me about growing up in South Dublin, her journey to the top with Mars, her passion to help women succeed in business, and the challenge of dealing with a pandemic for a global organisation such as Mars. We'll also discuss two of the big issues facing the food industry today, those of obesity and climate change. And Fiona gives some top tips to aspiring young executives starting out in their careers. Here we go. So, Fiona Dawson, welcome to Inside Business. Uh, after 33 years as a high flyer with the Mars Global Food Group, uh, you're now retired. How's it treating you? Gosh, yeah, it's it's still very early days. It's only 10 days, Kieran, And I still, as my sister pointed out last week, I'm finding it hard to say the R word. Um, because I think when I was younger, and maybe I am ancient now, I looked at people who were retired and they seemed to just stop doing anything. Um, but I'm very much looking forward to, you know, focusing on my boards. I've got a couple of NEDs and some of my not-for-profit work as well. So it feels like sort of a, a third phase or chapter. Um, but so far, so good. Just come back from Ireland and it was glorious. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you're only 55. So um, I am. that's an early retirement uh, in, in modern uh, work cycles, I, I would suggest. Um, listen, let's go back to the start. Uh, yes. You joined Mars in uh, 1988. But tell us a little bit about your background uh, in Dublin growing up. Sure. Um, it was in many ways very conventional and then on the other side, very unconventional. So grew up in Churchtown, went to the local school across the road, Notre Dame. Um, and, you know, stayed in the same school all the way through from primary to, to secondary. Um, I guess the unconventional side was my dad was in RTE. So he was a TV director and he used to direct The Late Late Show and then for many, many, many years um, and then uh, was also head of light entertainment. So we had this sort of heady mix of the nuns during the day and light entertainment during the evening and at the weekends as well. Um, so it, it probably gave me a, 
if somebody once said to me, you're the only person I know who's run away from the circus. We had a slightly unconventional dad would work on Saturday nights. Late night was on Saturday nights in those days. We'd spend many day, time out in uh, Donnybrook. Um, and I was drawn to business really, you know, much to the, not bemusement of my dad, but he certainly wouldn't have, you know, really known exactly what I was going into or what I was doing. But my mum was terribly encouraging of all of her, her kids, actually, just to be the best we could possibly be, actually. Yeah, sure. And you went to Trinity and did a business degree. I did. I did uh, ESS, as it was called in those days, in, in, in Trinity. Um, and it's it's fascinating to me now that it's come full circle. I, I sit on the a business advisory board uh, of Trinity with one of my first lecturers, Jared McHugh, actually, um, wow. which uh, which which I certainly didn't think I would be doing when I was in Trinity College. But I loved it. Absolutely loved Trinity. I've got great friends from there. You, you know, huge thanks to the development and opportunity it gave me in terms of becoming more of a generalist, actually, as I became in later life, certainly. Yeah. So what attracted you to Mars? How did that come about? It was 1988 when you first joined them. Gosh, yes, Kieran. You know, I often say this to my kids. I mean, I'm as guilty with my kids at 22 and 18. You know, what do you want to do? Where do you want to go? I think mine was a process of what I didn't want to do, actually. Quite a few of my contemporaries went into areas like accountancy and consultancy. That was very much seen as a, a very good road to go down. Indeed, it was a very and is a very good road to go down. But I really didn't fancy it for myself. And I went to um, the milk round of Mars and they had such a variety and portfolio of products. Very engaging. I loved the idea of their principles at that stage. And it was my mum, actually, who said, look, it's a very good place to go for a training. People tend not to stay. <laughs> but uh, but certainly go for two or three years onto their grad scheme and and that's what attracted to me to be honest with you so tell us about those early days with mars what did you work on i started um in the heady heights of a, as a merchandiser so mars made the big mistake of on their application form at that stage they said can you drive and i said i can what they didn't ask you is do you have a driving license so I went into sales, but I had to go around uh, North uh, County Dublin building displays, pet food displays. I remember it vividly um, by bus carrying all my merchandise. Uh, when I eventually got my driving test, I then moved over to the UK in sales and, and pretty much trod a very familiar path for a lot of training schemes. I moved around from sales into commercial, into marketing. And that was a great thing about Mars. It gave you that breath at the time, it's a, you know, I think P&G, Unilever, a lot of the grad schemes would do. And it made me realise very early on, I think, I, I loved sales, I loved customer facing roles, but I also was this generalist um, who was sort of curious about all aspects of the business. So when you joined in 88, obviously pre-Celtic Tiger years, yeah. Ireland a bit depressed in the 80s and so forth, a lot of graduates had to go abroad to... Um, kickstart their careers. Was that always in your mind, leaving Ireland to work? Yeah, I mean, I came to the UK in 89, actually, um, as part of the grad scheme. And it was nearly taken for granted in Ireland that you would go to to the UK or, or abroad. I'd met my to-be husband at the time, so um, he was in Trinity with me. And uh, I was very reluctant to leave home, as you can imagine. 
um, and those were the days before the mobile phone or anything like that. Mm. But um, we spent a lot of time backwards and forwards and, and was on the grad scheme there. Came back in 92 and I thought that was it. Um, I, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't go back or, or, or leave again. Um, but but I did. We went to Holland and we've obviously living now in the UK as well. But uh, it very much was expected. It was very tough times in the late 80s. And it's wonderful to see Ireland as the country it is today and how it's grown and how it's changed so enormously from those days. Now, one of the major roles you've had with Mars is as general manager of the Irish business. I don't know if that was your, if you feel that was your first big break there. But what what was that like? Because obviously you, you were returning home, weren't you, to do that? Yeah. I mean, gosh, in so many ways, that was such a fantastic opportunity. I was seven months pregnant with my first son, Connor. Uh, it was 1999 and um, I came back. I was 32. I got general manager. I had some amazing mentors in Mars who believed in me and that I could do it. Not everyone did, but but a couple of people who I really trusted. And I had a great guy who who took a leap of faith with me as a general manager. But being honest with you, Kieran, at that age and that stage, um, it was very nerve wracking going back to be the boss of people whom I'd been their peer or indeed they'd been my boss at certain occasions. And I learned an awful lot about leadership. I think I went back in the beginning and desperately wanted to be liked by them all. I think that may be natural, but certainly it's in my tendencies to be liked. And over the course of the two years that I ran the Irish business, I realised actually I needed to be respected more and take the tough decisions on people, even if they had previously been friends of mine, um, bosses of mine. But I needed to give the tough feedback to be able to ensure that we continue to drive the business forward in the right way. And how did you manage that? Um. With a lot of reflection, soul searching, trial and error, I guess. I used to personalise a lot of feedback in the beginning days. When I was giving tough feedback to people, I used to feel really bad about it and probably caveat it, knowing me with lots of, I'm very sorry about this. You know, I need to tell you this. Mm. And actually, you realise this this is serving nobody any good. You really need to be tough on the problem and soft on the person. It, it's it's relatively easy to do when you think of it that way. Um, and actually be aware that people are generally not trying to do a bad job, but actually maybe the results aren't coming through in the way that you need them to come through um, and help people to really see the common goal of the, the whole team rather than themselves as an individual. That was more than 20 years ago. What was the environment like at that time for a woman senior executive in business and particularly in Ireland where, you know, it would have been pretty male dominated back then. I mean, it's still a live issue now. So what was it like over 20 years ago? Do you know what? In many ways, I was oblivious to it, Kieran. to be honest with you. Um, people were hugely supportive. I think they were incredibly proud of having an Irish general manager. There had been a series of um, some Irish general managers, but a lot of expats coming in to Ireland. They were very supportive of me. Um, and I had some amazing customers who I'm still friends with today, like Tom Shipsey in the trade, who really, again, without me realising it, gave me huge encouragement. Um, and, and I think that naivety probably served me very well, because looking back on it, I know there were lots of pitfalls and lots of people thinking, well, here's this you know, young one and with a young baby and will she be able to do it all? 
But I didn't feel that was a barrier, certainly, that was obvious to me. So tell us exactly what a senior executive in Mars does. What was what was your kind of day-to-day role, let's say, as general manager of the Irish business? Um, I think you've got to do a fine balance between setting the strategy, and by strategy I really mean the three- to five-year term horizon, um, and then the operational. I think when you're running a business, it's very easy, and, and particularly if we think about the current climate that we're all in, to focus in on the short term and take short-term decisions. Now, we're very lucky we're a private company, and so we can afford to take long-term decisions. Um, the day-to-day would be a mixture of trying not to micromanage, which is hard. You've got to step back and look at the key KPIs. You've got to surround yourself with a team that you trust, that will be transparent with the facts and elevate them to you as needed. Um, And a lot around people development. You really are, when you're a general manager or running businesses, you're running the business through your team. They're relying on you to take the tough decisions and to make sure that we're on track, deep dive if needed. But really you're delivering through your team and enabling your team as you go forward. At EY, Our purpose is to build a better working world. As one of Ireland's leading professional services firms, our exceptional people are at the centre of everything we do. We deploy technology at speed and innovation at scale to deliver exceptional solutions for our clients, enabling them to transform and grow. To find out more, visit ey.com. You have a great portfolio of products, obviously, very diversified. Everybody thinks about the Mars yes. chocolate bar, but it's obviously much broader yes, uh, than yes. that. You're in pet food and a whole uh, range of other things. Um, so w- when you look back at it, um, does that make it easier as a, <clears throat> as a job when you have big brands like Mars and Milky Way, let's say, uh, which are so familiar uh, to people or, or the big pet food brands that you had? Um, or does that make it a bit more difficult in that, you know, Mars gets to a certain point uh, in its evolution, and then it's probably hard to go beyond that. Yeah, you have a lot of competitors nipping at your heels and so forth. Yeah, I mean, I think we've really seen, particularly in the latter years, but it's never been the case, um, strong competition in all the fields we've worked in. So big confectionery portfolio, pet care portfolio, as you mentioned, and a food portfolio as well. These are highly competitive spaces with some very good big competitors, but also small artisan products now that are coming onto the market. Um, And if you're over 100 years old as a brand, how do you keep yourself modern and fresh while still retaining your core? I mean, people will know many cases of brands that have lost that core identity and actually forgotten who they were. So that's a a very fine balance, um, a mixture of art and science, but really ultimately listening to your consumer base, driven by your consumers and your customers um, there are disadvantages with the trades. They can see you and as a big player. You've got big pockets and um, put you under a lot of pressure. Um, but equally, it gives you ability and indeed responsibility as a market leader to do the right thing. So we were the first manufacturer to announce that we would stop advertising to children under the age of 16, for instance, before you know, many people now have subsequently followed suit. We've taken bold steps with regards to reformulation of not just our confectionery products, but our food products as well. And our food products now in line with all of the WHO food standards. Now, why is that important? It's important because people will often think about health and well-being. And I talked about these artisan products and I'm amazed by the food culture in Ireland now. It's just amazing. 
but it does tend to be more expensive. It does tend to be those who are lucky enough to have more disposable income than less. And so I think as big manufacturers, you have to do the right thing, not just in terms of the bottom line, but for your consumer base and your customer base to ensure you're around for the next 100 years. And I guess that affinity with sort of iconic brands that are reinventing themselves has also sort of led to my board portfolio as it currently stands. So brands like Lego, which obviously have reinvented themselves over the years, um, and also Marks and Spencers, who are going through their own transformation. And everybody tends to have a, a view on big brands, good or bad, but they tend to have a view. Um, and therefore, f- listening to your consumer base can sometimes be conflicting. So you need real experts in your team who can translate all the data that they have. And thankfully, we're now all digitally tuned to ensure that they take the right strategic path forwards. Has Mars been proactive or reactive in responding to those challenges? Because obviously, huge debates uh, in the Western world around obesity mm-hmm. um, and around sugar levels in uh, food and so forth. And we've had a sugar, um, you know, sugar taxes being um, mooted yeah. in, in many countries. And you're selling a confectionery product, yeah. which is is a nice treat. But if you have it on a regular basis, it's not going to be very good for you. Let's, sure. let's face it. Um, so was Mars over the years proactive in dealing with those issues? Or um, was it reactive in terms of responding to policy measures? 100% proactive. I'm incredibly proud of the work that the team have done. Um, I myself was part of something called the Responsibility Deal over here in the UK, um, which uh, was involving manufacturers, NGOs, public policymakers as well. And you could say, well, as a confectionery company, why would you be involved in that? But Kieran, you've just hit the nail on the head. You know, if you need to lose some weight, then you shouldn't be overindulging in certain areas. Now, at the end of the day, with traffic light labelling, if a Mars bar didn't have red on certain aspects, you'd be going, well, why is that? What does it have? But the problem with the, the modern day diet is there are so many hidden fats, salts and sugars in our diet. And it's about providing the transparency and a level playing field for people to make choices, not just about not having an additional treat, but actually the everyday products that they eat that they think are so-called healthy, but actually have got more calories in them than some of the, the so-called treat food. Yeah, sure. I mean, one, one of the best um, ads ever probably was, I mean, the one that sticks in a lot of people's heads is the Amara's a day helps you work, rest and play. I mean, it was a great piece of advertising, great piece of marketing. Yeah genius whoever came up with it yeah uh, but nonetheless i mean the fundamental message that it's given you there uh, is not a good one is it i think in those days calories were very different a lot of people it was a lot of manual labor it was around the glucose in the product it was around the milk a glass and a half of milk in Cadbury's, if you remember as well there was a lot of focus in on ingredients and um, certainly as i think it's it's beholden on any manufacturer any company as the science, as the evidence changes and evolves, it's not about what you necessarily have done, but how you respond to the new data. So as new data emerged, as we saw more evidence around growing levels of obesity, that's when we took action. And that's when we said, no, we need to do the right thing. And as I say, stopping advertising to children before um, we were the first leading manufacturer to do that. We were the first leading manufacturer to reformulate our products. So I think it's it's the same, whether it's tackling health and well-being or sustainability. If you think about climate change at the moment, 
you know, there are things that companies did in the past that they wouldn't do going forward. They're pivoting their business forward. And I think that's really important. You're constantly evolving, not defending the past, understanding it, contextualizing it, but actually responding to the future needs of your consumer base. Were there any campaigns that you worked on at the time that, you know, looking back now, uh, in hindsight, you regret? No, 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 not not that I would regret at all. I mean, we evolved very, very quickly. Um, and, you know, I think I think the key thing is that you are open to hearing all sides of the discussion. That's why we got involved with the NGOs, people who would actually, you know, see our products in a very negative light. Um, you can't shy away from these debates at all, but you do need to respond to them as and when they emerge. And we had a campaign called Raising the Bar, which is, was our commitment to mums, consumers, shoppers, customers about how we were going to change going forward. And once you say it out loud, then you then you are very much held to account by public record. Yeah, sure. What was your own preference? Mars, Milky Way? Oh, the other no, Toffee Revels. I was known... I was known <laughs> for going around the uh, Slough office and picking out all the toffee revels out of the bags of revels. In fact, I've got a pack here behind me on my desk that was specially made for me as I was leaving. And I just wonder about your kids. My, my father worked uh, for Cadbury and I remember going to a football match with him and um, he, uh, he took me into a shop to buy me a chocolate bar. Uh, and I, I wanted Mars and he was uh, he was obviously <laughs> trying to guide me towards uh, Cadbury. Uh, I stuck to my guns and I got my Mars bar, uh, but he was uh, he, he wasn't particularly happy. I know that. Um, did you have those challenges with your kids? 100 percent. 100 percent. You know, Halloween trick or treating a nightmare. Birthday parties, nightmare. Um, where children were scared within an inch of their lives. And actually still to the day, even if friends send me a WhatsApp of, you know, what they're doing in the evening time or what have you, and there's a competitive bar of chocolate there, they'll know that I'll still react to it as well. It never really leaves you, that sense of competition. It's what drives you forward. I mean, Cabris is a very good company and it was a very good employer in, in, in Ireland, obviously in Kulak, um, but still they were the competition and you wanted to win. Talk to me about some of the challenges, let's say, of recent years for a big company like Mars, uh, for example, the global financial crash, and, um, which sent a lot of economies into recession, uh, Brexit, yeah. uh, and uh, more recently, the pandemic. Um, how did they impact on the business? Well, as I mentioned, we're, we're very lucky to be one of the world's largest privately owned companies. And that allows for us to really take the long term view and, and respond to some of these um, a, a lot of our products, because of our portfolio base across the various categories in which we operate, not just confectionery, as I mentioned, um, but food and pet care particularly, uh, means it provides us with a, a degree of resilience against some of these financial ups and downs that we see on a cyclical basis. And I think the key thing really running a business is to try and diversify your portfolio as much as you can. Follow your consumer as well. So we've moved into online and digital fairly early days to ensure that um, we were in a good position when, for instance, the pandemic struck with regards to our digital footprint. Um, but saying that, I think the biggest toll a lot of these issues have had, and, and certainly more recently with the pandemic, and you'll know this well, Kieran, has been on our associate base. You know, people are exhausted and tired. And so really ensuring that we're looking after not just people's physical health, but thankfully mental health has now become a much 
more talked about issue, that we've got mental health first aiders, we've got family friendly policies. So the people are really switching off even after 18 months. And I think especially after 18 months of living in this environment. I think then in the communities in which we operated in, we were very conscious of the fact that we were in a privileged position, many of us on personal basis and professionally, we came involved in our local communities. So, for instance, in Ireland, we donated um, free meals to 80,000 um, people. We worked with HSE and donated airtime during the pandemic so they could advertise. We worked with Feed the Heroes. And those things are not just feel-good factors. They were something that actually our associates, our colleagues really wanted to do to make sure that they gave back as well. And it was incredibly important. I think one of the challenges we see at the moment is in you know huge inflation and challenges coming into the system. If we look at Brexit, um, irrespective of your, of your politics, I mean, personally, you won't be surprised to know I was clearly a Remain supporter. I believe in the free movement of goods and people. The, the history, particularly with the UK and Ireland, has been long and fraught. But nonetheless, I mean, my family over generations have, you know, zigzagged across um, the Irish Sea. But I, I think the what we're seeing at the moment with the Northern Ireland Protocol, some of the additional barriers that are there, some of the politics that are involved mean that we're seeing rising inflation on top of things like um, ocean freight costs have doubled and tripled. We see input costs going up, so corn and soybeans doubling over the last couple of years. Um, droughts like El Nino is like a perfect storm of input costs coming through. And I do worry about food shortages and inflation being passed on to our customers when effectively it's the worst time to do it because I think as we come out of the COVID payments um, support for a lot of people, we could be looking at higher levels of unemployment. So, you know, big manufacturers, big companies tend to hunker down, reformulate their business, look at how they can avoid costs. I worry about some of the smaller businesses and how they're going to deal with both the levels of bureaucracy and the cost inflation that's coming through. So what pivots did Mars make during the pandemic? Well, obviously, we all went online. Um, that was uh, that that was a given. Um, the first the first job that we had was ensuring that our associates were working in safe environments. So whilst everybody was working from home, we still had all of our manufacturing base in our factories, obviously. Um, and so ensuring, you know, food quality was not compromised, but most importantly, our associate safety. Uh, we worked with our local communities um, to make sure that the supply chains were also very, you know, people clearly were, there was a demand for food and a huge spike. At certain times, our food business saw increases of up to 50% in the period. I mean, that's coming from low single digit growth. So you've got to then pivot your portfolio to rationalise your range, cut out a lot of your secondary lines and focus on your blockbuster or your best selling items. Um. And that's when you run the business, actually, sometimes less on data and more on instinct and people just um, understanding their businesses and feeling the rhythm of their business when it is in a time of chaos and turmoil. As I say, not just on a professional basis. We've seen these crises before, but people were impacted themselves personally. And that added to the weight of pressure within the business. 
And as I say, the family friendly policies, um, ensuring that we uh, maintained everyone's pay. We didn't take any COVID payments from any governments. Um, but our associates knew that our environment was a safe environment in which to operate. And how did sales hold up for Mars during that period? Well, again, because we've got a balanced portfolio, our food business did incredibly well, strong double-digit growth. We saw very strong growth in our pet care business. Um, So many people have got new puppies and and kittens Mm. um, during the pandemic, and it provided great joy to them, as it does to many of us. Um, And we saw our confectionery business down as less people were on the move and on the go. If you think about small corner shops, they were obviously all closed down. So again, a balance across our portfolio, but in general, we, we fared reasonably well. Um, we did ensure that, um, as I say, we had the right investments in place and that we rationalised our range to keep our supply chains moving. That was the most important thing for us. Fiona, I just wonder whether you had made your decision to retire pre-pandemic or whether the pandemic maybe made you sort of think, well, maybe maybe the time now is to, is to step down and, and do something Gosh. else. That's a great question, Kieran. Um, I had always thought um, of 55 would be a good time to go. Um, I'm very lucky to be able to take uh, retirement from Mars at that stage. And I really wanted to leave on as, as good a note as I personally could. I didn't want to become in any way jaded or, or, or tired of what I was doing. And I certainly wasn't. I was invigorated by the year that we've just come through and incredibly proud of our teams. And um, I guess I didn't miss the travel. That's for sure. I used to travel an awful lot and I really enjoyed spending time at home with the family. Um, so probably it reinforced my decision rather than led to my decision. I certainly, um, I'm a great one for you know, if I'm in Dunleary, walking to the end of the pier, touching it and coming back. And because that had been my goal and I really wanted to enjoy a, a portfolio career, you know, moving into NEDS when I was young enough and able to enjoy those companies and, and have a, as I say, I'm a generalist. I love getting involved in these new businesses and, 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 new, uh, and new charities that I've become involved with. Uh, and tell me, how does an Irish woman uh, become a CBE? <laughs> it's an honorary CBE. Through an email on a Thursday. <laughs> oh, wow. I had to double check it wasn't a spam that came through. So I got an email through on a Thursday afternoon. Um, it's honorary, so it means that I don't, you know, do all of the um, ceremony of going to Buckingham Palace and etc. And I was nominated for the work that I do on behalf of women in the UK. Um, I chair the Women's Business Council it's a cause that's very close to my heart Um, trying to provide a voice for maybe sectors of our industry which are underrepresented, where we've got the biggest gender pay gap. And we look at um, areas where we can make, we believe, the biggest levels of progress. So we focus where we're business led, but government backed. We focus on areas such as retail construction, financial services, SMEs. Um, And we take some very interesting areas such as culture, workplace culture. We've been pioneering the um, women's, uh, the gender pay gap reporting, should I say, to provide transparency. So the work that we've been doing in there and um, obviously one of the team in there must have nominated me. So it was a complete surprise 
um, and and a lovely honour. But it is an yeah, it is an honorary CBE. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I mentioned earlier the challenges that still exist in in terms of women in business. How do you think Ireland fares versus the UK in that sphere? Oh, I see some tremendous women in Ireland. In fact, I sit on the board uh, of Marks and Spencers with Evelyn Burke, who used to run uh, Bupa and now is enjoying an NED um, portfolio career herself. Um, I, I think that Ireland has had a tradition of strong women um, throughout its history. Um, maybe those women didn't always have a voice. I mean, certainly my own mum had to give up work during the marriage ban. But I can see it in terms of those women now coming forward and, and really having a voice and making a difference. My role model in the 80s was Mary Robinson. I mean, this was a woman who was the underdog. She wasn't meant to get the presidency and she did. And she did so with grace, humanity and courage. And I'll never forget watching her and thinking if I could have an ounce of her dignity as she carried herself forward then I would be in a good position. So I think Irish women have trailblazed. Have they always had the opportunity? No, but they're making up for it in terms of lost time. Is there still a glass ceiling in place though? If you look at some, there are still some Irish stock market listed companies that have no women on their boards. Yeah, and that's a travesty to be honest with you. And there'll be a variety of reasons and excuses why not. But equally then there's some businesses that do the so-called one and done. I've got one woman on the board and that's good enough. Uh, and it's pure tokenism. So I do think we need to ensure, I mean, sometimes these are unconscious bias and I'm going to be generous and say they are unconscious biases rather than structural barriers in the way. But so many businesses don't recognise different life stages of women, whether it's having kids, whether it's looking after elderly parents. These should not be barriers to careers. I've had two kids. People have kids all the time and they do uh, um, and achieve careers and they do, um, you know, work in politics, etc. I think these things are put in the way of women um, and can seem insurmountable at the time. And you just need a cohort of people who say it will be OK. You can work at different rates throughout your career and get to where you want to. Not everyone wants to run a business. But what do you want to do and how do you want to get there? And undoubtedly, there's still unconscious bias, not just in Ireland, but but across the world, undoubtedly. And do we need more legislation? Does government need to do something? Um, certainly, I found the power of gender gap reporting, transparency in providing your data has been very powerful. The more transparency you can have, the better. Now, it's not just a number ticking box because it can be a variety of reasons why you'll have a difference in the numbers, but it's the conversation it drives. So I think that transparency we've had on our boards here in, in the UK, and I sit on the advisory board of it, the Hampton Alexander um, uh, board. And that's been focused on getting 33% of um, women onto boards, and they've achieved that now and exceeded it in the UK. But we'll still have a number of boards with one and done, a handful of boards with no women on it. And obviously now it's extending quite rightly into ethnic minorities and making sure they're represented I mean, if your board doesn't represent your consumer base, how are they going to make the right decisions? If it's a board that's full of like-minded people without a contrarian voice around the table, are they going to really make the right decisions? So I really believe when you're forming a team, you need to have a common set of values. You don't want any backstabbers on there. You need a common set of aims and agree the vision of the company going forward. But then you need a safe space where you can have a contrarian view 
that will add to the discussion, not take away from it. Yeah, sure. Let's talk a little bit about your your non-executive career now at the minute. You're on the boards of uh, Lego and Marks and & Spencer. Yes. Um, two very interesting companies, very well-known, high-profile companies. Lego sounds cool. Um, M&S uh, probably going through a bit of a tough time in terms of clothing and so forth. And obviously, bricks-and-mortar retail has had a, a tough 16, 17 months with the lockdowns um, uh, and so forth. Um, so what attracted you to those two companies? So Lego, Lego was a a process of um, immersion, I'd say. They first talked to me about four years ago. Um, and the more I got to know the company, the more I got to know the again, is privately owned. Um, the more I got to know the, the, the family and, and the board themselves um, and truly a value-led, principle-run company that um, has the Lego Foundation, but also firmly believes in um, the power of learning through play, how you can educate the kids through play. I think we've all started off on Lego. But then looking at the ecosystem of Lego, again, I mentioned about taking a brand that's, you know, 100 years old, how they've moved from simply being the bricks to theme parks, gaming and um, movies. How far can you extend a brand? Um, how, la- how far will the consumer let you extend your brand without losing its core identity, but also its commitment to sustainability? And obviously, plastics being the big one with Lego, um, but also net neutral carbon emissions is, is a big move that they've made too. Um, Marks and Spencer's um, clearly in a much more of a turnaround. They're into year three of their turnaround. Actually, they're doing um, relatively well against that context in the year. If you look at their their recent results, um, they've been ahead of 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 where they had had predicted. Um, but yes, of course, it's been a challenging time in retail, footfall down, safety of staff, safety of customers coming in, but also supply chain. Brexit been a real challenge for Marks and Spencers at the moment, um, and the need for a pragmatic solution with regards to Brexit. But what amazed me about Marks and Spencer, A, I love the brand. I remember, mm. do you remember Grafton Street? I remember when they took over the old Switzer's building and going in there into Marks and Spencer's. And it was, mm. it was the pinnacle of, you know, I got my work suits in there and it meant so much um, in terms of quality and it still stands for great quality. Um, and when I talked to the board, Archie Norman's the chairman, I talked to all of the board members, some fabulous board members um, and the executive team led by Steve Rowe. What really inspired me was their united belief in the turnaround of the business, the commitment of the business and how well the executive team and the board worked together. Real transparency, talking through issues. You what I've never wanted to do, moving from executive to non-executive, you don't want the nodding head, thanks a million, that's a great question response, and feeling like you're not adding value. If you're simply going to be there as tokenism or you're simply going to be there to sign off audit notes, that's not the kind of board I'd, I'd want to be part of. It's a board where people are united in their desire to make a difference. And that's the unifying fact, as well as great brands across both Lego and Marks and Spencers, although they're in very different phases of their journey. Yeah, sure. So do you feel a need to to have a wardrobe full of Marks and Spencer clothes or how does that uh, work? The, my top today, thank you very much, is from Marks and Spencers. I have been a Marks and Spencers shopper. 
And um, actually, I've I've rediscovered um, a lot of their clothing. I mean, it's great value. I mean, I'm, this is not a Marks and Spencer's plug, sorry. But, you know, you know, I had this amazing dress the other day, £35, so probably €40. Euros. Um, but it was it was fun. It's fantastic. You can pop it in the washing machine. It's brilliant. So, um, yeah. so, so yes, I'm a big fan of Marks and Spencer's. There is still, still a job to be done. I mean, and the team are very open about that on clothing and home in particular. Food doing very well, although obviously in Ireland hampered by Brexit. Um, but, but in general, food doing very, very well. Um, and clothing and home is on its turnaround journey, plus the digitization and the website and, and, and um, the investment that's going behind it. So do we need to change the Northern Ireland protocol to get past these issues that the likes of M&S have been having in terms of getting food through? Well, I am certainly not a politician and the Northern Ireland Protocol is there for a reason to protect the Good Friday Agreement, which I think everybody wants to see um, intact. Um, and nobody, we all remember too well, you know, the the days of the troubles and, and what that meant. But what I do know is that we definitely need a more pragmatic solution you know, the, the way it currently stands, Marks and Spencers are estimating that the range will be cut by about 20%. There will be a significant amount of cost pressure coming in. Um, it's a mainly paper-based checks that need to happen. It requires 13 vets. You can't have certain products coming in, such as chilled meats, as we know. And there's an extension period um, to the 20th of September. And I really hope a more pragmatic type of trusted trader arrangement is, is brought in. Because at the moment, the paper-based, people say, well, what's the difference with that? But, you know, if you're working in a particularly fresh food and a fresh food supply chain, and this isn't just Marks and Spencers, it's, as I say, smaller companies as well, you have to deal with it. Paper-based is a thing of the past, it's back in the 70s. You know, you, you can't be dealing with that. And so it means that food supplies are getting in later, like, you know, 24 hours later, maybe 48 hours later as well. So uh, definitely something needs to happen. Um, I'm not a politician, but I know that things do need to change. Yes, well, that was a political answer. Well done. Thank um, you. <laughs> a couple of quick questions to, to close. Um, just curious about your leadership style. How would you describe it? I'd describe it as hopefully firm but caring. Okay. <laughs> and I wonder what advice you would give aspiring young executives starting out on their careers, maybe just coming out of uh, Trinity now with their business degree under their arms. Um, and I wonder whether that advice will be different for women than for the men. Well, I can't speak on behalf of a man, but I can on behalf of a woman. And certainly I would say to my younger self and to women in general is, Try not to be too perfect the whole of the time. I, I know that sounds like one of the a non-answer answer, but I definitely had a fear of failure in my early years. I felt I had to get everything right. I personalised feedback. And actually what I've learned over the years is during, you mentioned a number of crises that we've been through over the last recent past. It's been through those crises that actually I've learned the most. I've learned the most about my leadership style. I've learned the most about my businesses. I've learned the most about my teams, of course, corrected and moved forward. And although they feel incredibly uncomfortable at the time, you actually get some terrific results and great creativity comes out of difficult times. As long as you hold your nerve and as long as you make sure that you have the best team around you. So try not to fear failure, but really understand what you can learn by some of the mistakes that you may be making. 
um, because that will allow you to take greater risks. Okay, that sounds like pretty sound advice to me. Fiona Dawson, um, thank you for joining Inside Business and we wish you well in your, what sounds like a very busy retirement. Thank you very much, Kieran. It's been a pleasure. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Fiona Dawson for joining me on the show. The program was produced by Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. Thanks also to our sponsor, EY, for its continued support. Remember, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.